Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lothran of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. In this third episode, we look at the 1950s debates over how weapons developments should proceed. The listener will find strong parallels to the modern debates over waterfall versus agile development practices. Weapons development in the 1940s and 1950s followed an agile method of iterative and incremental decisions made by small, empowered teams. Yet this practice became supplanted by the belief that iteration and competitive developments revealed a failure to plan, and that planning could relieve all uncertainties in weapons development. As you listen to the story, consider how weapons today are expected to proceed linearly from science to prototyping to full-scale development, production, and then operations and sustainment. There is little or no room for feedback mechanisms and learning. However, Another important aspect of software today is not just agile development, but continuous development and deployment of capability in what is called DevOps. The lines between development and production are not as clear today as they were presented in the hardware-oriented world of the 1950s. Listen in on our third chapter of Program to Fail, this time focusing on the emerging religion of systems analysis, a religion which continues to pervade the defense acquisition system 70 years later. The centralization of the armed forces, described in the last episode, theoretically allows for efficient resource allocation. The central planner's tools, the program budget, seeks unified operations based on integrated, long-range plans. Yet the whole concept relies on numerous estimates about the future state of the world. Moreover, there often exist many technical solutions to a program requirement, each of which has its own uncertainties as to cost, schedule, and performance. Program budgeting, therefore, relies on a process for identifying the optimal course of action, for predicting the future. The set of techniques used to inform programmatic decision-making is broader than that of statistics alone. It includes optimizations, marginal analysis, game theory, linear programming, and cost-benefit comparisons. The whole set of quantitative techniques became known as systems analysis. The rise of systems analysis in the Department of Defense was nurtured by Air Force General Henry Hap Arnold. He wanted to improve military research by funding a university without students. Project RAND was first put on contract through Douglas Aircraft and broke away as an independent corporation in 1948. It attracted some of the most famous academics from a diverse set of fields. Championed by RAND, 
The systems analysis approach was most fully adopted by the Air Force and the aerospace industry. The Wright Air Development Center began suggesting that contractors make their proposals as a result of a systems analysis study. Industry proponents, such as Lockheed, suggested the practice become a requirement for all design and procurement decisions. RAND analyst E.S. Quaid wrote how, quote, There seems to be a feeling in some parts of the Air Force that the systems approach may provide the complete answer to all questions of development, procurement, and operation, as well as those of design, end quote. One ambitious Air Force officer that carried the mantle of systems analysis under General Arnold was Colonel Bernard Schriever. As a planning officer in the bomber development, Schriever insisted that systems analysis recommend the single best configuration. Planning around the optimal design allowed for concurrent progress in development and production. With all pieces of acquisition moving together, the greatest technological advancement could be achieved for the least cost and the shortest schedule. Schriever brought the systems analysis concept into action to develop a competitor to the strategic bomber's mission, which brought him into conflict with Hap Arnold, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, or ICBM. During the budget drawdown of fiscal year 1947 and 1948, the Air Force gutted its missile R&D in favor of bombers. 28 full-scale missile projects in 1946 fell to only three in 1950. By that time, however, RAND and other industry studies began showing increasing feasibility for long-range missiles to carry out nuclear payloads. Starting in 1951, the Air Force provided limited funds to relatively low-priority ballistic missile project, designated first Project MX-1593, and later Project Atlas. Believing that space technologies would dominate over the long haul, Schriever supported the ICBM concept. It led him into conflict over resource priorities with General Curtis LeMay, who continued to favor strategic bombers. Project Atlas could not get fully underway until a change of leadership occurred with the inauguration of President Eisenhower. Trevor Gardner, special assistant for R&D to the new Secretary of the Air Force, also supported ICBM technologies. He initiated a committee of distinguished scientists and engineers to make recommendations. Under the leadership of John von Neumann, the Teapot Committee report found that ICBMs could be operational by 1960. That was only six years away from the report's release in February 1954. But the committee warned that the accomplishment could only be achieved under the direction of a new agency relieved of excess detailed regulation. A month later, the Air Force put Atlas on a crash basis. Three months later, Atlas became assigned the Air Force's top priority. By August 1954, Trevor Gardner convinced Bernie Schriever, now a brigadier general, to manage the ICBM program by granting him sweeping authority. Largely freed from time-consuming approvals involving nearly 40 military offices, Schriever could transcend the coordinating role of other program managers. He had the authority to manage the program to success. Systems analysis endorsed the use of a single prime contractor. While Convair had been the incumbent on Atlas, Schriever chose Ramo Woolridge to take its spot in systems engineering and technical direction. Schriever relied on Ramo Woolridge, an upstart company created by former Caltech physicists at Hughes Aircraft, 
to make sure all parts of the program move together and minimize the risk of specification change during integration and production. The systems analysis approach generally pursued a single best systems configuration resulting from a cost-effectiveness study of alternatives. Schriever took the same approach with Ramo Woolridge, selecting one design for the airframe, Convair, the propulsion, North American, the nose cone, General Electric, inertial guidance, Sperry Rand, and so forth. However, before Schriever could get underway, the Scientific Advisory Board recommended a second parallel source of ICPM development using more conventional technology as a hedge against Atlas's possible failure. The genesis of the Titan ICBM, the Air Force's parallel effort to Atlas, actually lay with RAND President Frank Kohlblum. As historian David Honschel shows, Kohlblum was the only member of the Scientific Advisory Board to formally object to Schriever's systems analysis plan. In fact, RAND was initially asked to take the lead as systems integrator for the Atlas before Ramo Woolridge, and Kohlblum turned it down. Although his reason is unclear, Honschel provided some clues as to his thinking. Quote, From Kohlbohm's statements to von Neumann, we know that he believed there was a misfit between the Air Force's new religion of systems engineering and what Kohlbohm thought would be the best way to get an ICBM built and fully operational. Also, Kohlbohm believed that Rand's undertaking of such a task would not be consistent with his institution's fundamental mission for the Air Force. Unquestionably, Kohlblum's views match quite closely the ideas that Armin Alchin had been developing since the late 1940s about the importance of diversity in technological development. The critical difference between research development and procurement and the inherent problems of employing systems analysis to optimize the performance of an advanced weapon system that had yet to be developed, end quote. Rand had a small number of economists who criticized systems analysis. They found it detrimental to innovation. Kohlbaum appeared to reflect those sentiments, despite the fact that Rand rose to prominence under the expectation that systems analysis could cure all project inefficiencies. Armin Alchin, not an engineer but an economist, led the debates within Rand about the proper role of systems analysis. In the years before the war, Alchin had been studying economics at Stanford, for his dissertation, he analyzed the effects of a general cut in wages on the economy. After six long years of doctoral program, Alchin submitted his dissertation to his supervisors in 1942. He marked it, For Your Eyes Only. Normally, Alchin would have defended his work and received his doctorate. But the United States, having entered the war, the effects of general wage cuts took new importance. His supervisors informed the authorities and in turn, the U.S. Army Air Corps offered Alchin a job doing statistical evaluations. Though he had to wait another two years for his doctorate, Alchin recalled that his military service gave him the time to wonder what it meant to be an economist. After the war, Alchin took a job teaching economics at UCLA. It just so happened that Rand also opened up a few miles away in Santa Monica. Alchin's friend at Rand wanted to bring him over for part-time consulting, but they didn't have a role for an economist. By 1948, Charles Hitch was invited to lead a new economics division that at first consisted only of Alchin and himself. Hitch had gained some notoriety before the war in mainstream economics. He asked whether firm managers actually followed the profit-maximizing rule endorsed by economists. 
In other words, did firms actually set prices equal to marginal costs? When Hitch did the field work, he discovered that managers priced their output at the average cost of production rather than the marginal cost. For economists, the results implied that firms in the real world were actually leaving money on the table. If they simply priced output at marginal cost, they could increase profitability and the social welfare. Many interpreted the results as proof that markets generated inefficiencies. They explained how public managers would set price at marginal cost. Due to fixed investments, marginal cost is usually assumed to be lower than average costs. If firms priced output at marginal cost, they would have lower prices and increased quantity supplied. It would be a tremendous boon to public consumption. Alton remembered being drawn to the question not by his interactions with Hitch, but from a debate in the American Economic Review. Richard Lester argued that firms couldn't know enough about their costs and consumer demand to do the optimization. Fritz Malklup agreed, but responded that the profit-maximizing procedure is predictive construct for how firms reacted to change. Quote, if that was the quality of analysis passing for economics, I should have stayed in the military, Alchin confessed. While discussing the controversy for his class that Maclup and Lester should read Darwin, he explained how, quote, competitive trial and error will evolve towards the fittest, whom the economist characterizes as the profit maximizers, end quote. Word of his lecture got around and a colleague asked Alchin to publish an article based on it. Alchin initially scoffed at the idea, thinking it all too obvious and trivial. To his astonishment, Alchin discovered that economists had simply forgotten or ignored the principles of evolutionary competition. In 1950, Alchin published his first and perhaps most famous paper, Uncertainty, Evolution, and Economic Theory. It took a completely different approach to profit maximization question. Alton described how each action is associated not with a unique outcome, but with a distribution of possible outcomes. Alternative actions may have extensive overlapping outcome distributions due to uncertainty. A decision maker cannot maximize. The decision maker can only choose between outcome distributions based on preference. For Alchin, the filtering process of economic systems was more important than the decision of any individual. He directly compared the survival of firms in the economy to the survival of species in nature. Quote, the economic counterparts of genetic heredity, mutations, and natural selection are imitation, innovation, and positive profits. End quote. Positive realized profits were the mark of success and viability in markets not maximized profits. Those who suffer losses were filtered out of the economic system like a species gone extinct. Alchin explained, quote, As in a race, the award goes to the relatively fastest, even if all competitors loaf. Even in a world of stupid men, there would still be profits. Also, the greater the uncertainties of the world, the greater the possibility that profits would go to the venturesome and lucky rather than the logical, careful, fact-gathering individuals." End quote. With extreme uncertainty, the environment may adopt survivors at a sheer chance. This means that there was no specifiable way of optimizing actions. But even in a world of unmotivated behavior and random outcomes, we will still observe successful actions. 
And when we evaluate those actions after the fact, they will appear as if they were devised with perfect foresight. They would have appeared to maximize profits. Alchin understood, however, that people had genuine motivations and outcomes that were not entirely random. He advocated imitating successful ideas in the real world and trying out new variations. Some would be labeled innovators. Others would be reckless violators of tried and true rules. The only specifiable actions Alchin recommended to human actors was to pursue imitative, venturesome, innovative, trial and error adaptive behavior. Over the next few years, Alchin applied his evolutionary ideas to the problems of weapon systems choice. The analysis of profit maximization had much in common with systems analysis. One of the primary advocates for systems analysis within RAND was engineer E.S. Quaid. He later recalled how, quote, It wasn't until Armin Alchin, Jack Hirschleifer, and other economists torn to my first system study apart that I became aware that economic theory had anything to do with the contribution to weapons choice, end quote. One paper in particular exposed the critical errors of systems analysis. On January 27, 1954, Armin Alchin released a paper with Ruben Kessel entitled A Proper Role for Systems Analysis. It started by reviewing Quaid's work. Quaid discussed four existing problems that can be remedied by systems analysis. Quote, 1. Contractors seldom feel well compensated for development effort alone. Hence, systems analyses are required in order to avoid unprocured development. 2. Resources are wasted when perfectly sound aircraft are developed and then not procured. 3. Superiority of particular planes proposed by competitors could reliably be evaluated by the Air Force. And 4. There is too long an interval from research to production. End quote. The existing practice had been for Air Force contractors to assume development risk by investing their own funds. They had to prove their designs before securing a lucrative production contract. A system that didn't make it into production risked financially ruining the contractor. In order to eliminate wasteful loss leader investments in R&D, systems analysis helped identify specifications with the maximum effectiveness for the least cost. An already well-known issue with systems analysis was the problem of the criterion or the character of the value upon which alternatives are judged. Does the analyst want to maximize accuracy? Or is it reliability? Damage? Maybe something else? The number of attributes inherent in a complex system often conflict, such that an increase in, for example, accuracy, usually comes at the expense of reliability or damage. Alchin, however, did not pile on to the criterion problem. Instead, he focused on clarifying the decision problem. He found the most basic problem in decision analysis to be whether a situation calls for a single best choice or whether a diversity of action should be taken. For example, if the Air Force is looking at a new bomber design, should it choose between a turboprop engine and a pure jet engine, or should it pursue both designs simultaneously? Alchin asked the crucial question, quote, for some problems, great gains will come from unique binding choices resulting from a systems analysis. For others, the gains will come from a diversity of actions. 
In what situations is the latter principle of diversity preferable? And in what situations is the former appropriate? Do systems analysis help us answer these questions? Does it help us select diverse or unique actions? End quote. To answer his own question, Alchin examined whether implications of a maximization exercise equated with a decision or a choice of action. He found that, quote, if the assumptions were regarded as perfectly accurate forecasts and if the predictability of technological capabilities were known with perfect accuracy, then the maximization criterion, assuming one had the correct criterion, would reveal the optimal choice of actions, end quote. In other words, if all estimates of future states of the world were perfectly known, including 1. the design and production feasibility of new weapons, questions of R&D, and 2. the enemy's capabilities, intentions, and environments, questions of procurement, then maximization along the correct criterion will lead to an optimal decision. On the other hand, when forecasts contain uncertainty, there is not available any generally acceptable rule for rational behavior. The limitation occurs because outcomes correspond to a probability distribution of costs under each type of choice. To illustrate, suppose that the Air Force evaluated two design proposals with the exact same performance. Design A costs $100 million to develop, and Design B costs $50 million. If the forecasts of cost and performance were known perfectly accurate, then the decision is clear. You go with Design B. Supposing that Design B also costs $100 million, now the Air Force should be indifferent between the two. They both cost $100 million. However, if Design B employs a new team or technology, it may create uncertainty resulting in a distribution of potential outcomes. For simplicity, suppose Design B is equally likely to cost $50 million as it is to cost $150 million. Though the expected cost is $100 million, the same as Design A, the decision now depends on the decision maker's preference for risk. The more risk-loving the decision maker, the more he is willing to gamble that Design B will prove successful and accept that if he isn't, that he will pay dearly for it. The more risk-averse the decision maker, the more he's willing to pay for the assurance provided by Design A at $100 million. In reality, both designs will likely have extensively overlapping probability distributions for each of cost, schedule, and performance estimates. Systems analysis, which relies on expected values from possible future states of the world, cannot provide a single best choice under conditions of uncertainty. The fragility of the systems analysis approach to uncertainty was exposed early on. The first systems analysis performed by Rand in 1949 found that turboprop bombers were more cost-effective than pure jet bombers. Displeased with the results, General LeMay changed the assumptions of the systems analysis. He discovered that the turboprop costs doubled while the cost of the pure jet bomber fell by half. Systems analysis seemed to confirm biases. When uncertainty reigned, Alchin believed that the decision pertaining to R&D should be separated from that of procurement. The former relies on determining the feasibility of new weapons. The latter, procurement, relies on determining the correct weapon to fight or deter the enemy. Alchin referenced a 1952 paper that was called The Chef, The Gourmet, and The Gourmand. 
There he wrote how, these two decisions are very different in their timing and the information required and the criterion of proper decision and the intended effect. He continued, quote, Since we suffer from predictive myopia in both eyes, both the R&D and the procurement decision, we can either guess and then design what we hope to be the optimal weapon, or we can truthfully admit that we do not know and obtain insurance by designing several alternative weapons, one for each possible contingency. The research and development effort is intended to create designs of new weapons, which will form our confirmed and broad set of weapons available for procurement. It must be recognized that R&D is directed towards providing the set of available choices rather than towards providing one weapon that ex post best collates with the realized state of the world 10 years hence. To assume that our foresight is adequate for this purpose is the error of not knowing how blind we really are. R&D not only advances us technically, it is also our only assurance of flexibility and wide range of choice in the future. End quote. Alton believed that good R&D policy created a menu of available weapons that reduce uncertainty of procurement decisions. With a menu of weapons, the procurement decision need only focus on its own uncertainties related to concepts of operation instead of compounding uncertainties on top of those of R&D. In this way, procurement decisions gain from the availability of options emerging from realized outcomes of R&D decisions minimizing the scope and magnitude of error. He developed a useful analogy that formed the title of his paper. Quote, the research and development decisions are those of the chef, who concocts new dishes and plans a menu of available dishes from which the gourmet, at a later time, has the privilege of choosing in light of his taste, companion, and income. A good chef provides a broad menu, thereby assuring the gourmet the opportunity to make the best selection. The difference between the chef and the gourmet must be kept strictly distinct. To confound the two is disastrous in military as it is in the restaurant business. End quote. Alchin's critical insight was the principle of insurance. He advanced the idea of ensuring procurement and operation outcomes by fully developing a diversity of systems that could be selected from. Similar to how individuals pay a premium to insure themselves against natural uncertainties related to health, financial, and other risks, Alchin argued that the military should pay a premium in R&D to hedge against weapon systems uncertainty in procurement and operations. The insurance policy that diversity provides is especially important when the costs to procure and operate a system are large relative to R&D. Said differently, diversification has higher R&D costs on average than a single best choice, but it also leads to better developments with less cost uncertainty overall. Perhaps most importantly, this method lowers procurement and operations costs. The savings and increased utility of resulting weapons more than pays back the increased outlays in R&D. Alchin wrote, we must therefore recommend the development of a menu of several alternative weapons, guaranteeing that the ignorant or malevolent critics will be able to show that a large majority of them were useless and wasted millions of dollars, but assuring ourselves the flexibility in order to have safety and economy with optimal weapons in actual use. End quote. 
While diversification achieves insurance, it does not involve funding more projects based on a system's analysis, as one might spread investments across financial asset classes. Diversification in management results from taking intermediate actions, each of which benefits from optionality previously gained. Algen did not recommend pursuing the development of the top two, three, or more designs resulting from a systems analysis, only to wait and see which fully integrated system went from paper to hardware most efficiently. Rather, he favored placing options at regular steps, which allowed for reflection upon the information gained. As Alchin explained, quote, There will not result a specific series of particular steps which must be taken each year. The only firm decision now is the one applying the steps taken in the first year. Actions of the succeeding years, while conditioned by the chosen moves in this year, are to be selected from the choices available in later years. In a nutshell, we seek a strategy for selecting actions as the need arises. We do not seek a particular series of actions to be committed to now. End quote. The principle of diversification conceived by Alchin unlocks the benefits of optionality. An option is a right without an obligation to take a future action depending on how circumstances unfold. Options provide the ability to defer decisions to the future, usually at a cost. Optionality in management recognizes that when organizations make an investment, they can first change direction or funding levels before project completion, and second, use project outcomes in a variety of ways. By placing options throughout an investment project, through multiple paths, intermediate decision points, or both, managers can take advantage of information as it becomes available without pre-committing to one approach. The Manhattan Project provides an early example of the benefits of real options. Four major paths for developing fissionable material were taken in 1943, but it took the composite of a fifth path and two existing paths to achieve success. As researchers Sylvain Lenfle and Christopher Locke showed, quote, for the production of visible materials, a breakthrough came when it was discovered that a new process, thermal diffusion, could provide slightly enriched uranium, which would then feed the gaseous diffusion and electromagnetic processes for further enrichment. The parallel processes were unexpectedly combined into composite processes that finally achieved the desired performance. End quote. Had the program manager, General Leslie Groves, decided to pursue only the single best path, the atomic bomb may not have completed on time. However, it turned out that a diversity of four paths would not have created the solution on their own had they taken the systems analysis approach. Without the option to start new paths and modify the course of existing paths, the atomic bomb may not have had such a timely completion. The use of options was in fact pervasive in early Air Force developments. A 1963 RAND study found that the Air Force's six most recent fighters, four of them ended up with different engines than originally planned, three ended up with different electronic systems, and five with different airframes. The examples highlight important implications of Armin Alchin's work. First, the necessary information to select the best weapon system is not available outside the process in which they are brought to test. Two, 
project control should provide flexibility to take advantage of information as it arises by placing options at regular steps to reevaluate direction and funding. And three, project outcomes create positive spillovers by solving problems on other, potentially unrelated, projects. Taken together, the implications call for a trial-and-error approach to program management as opposed to a systems approach of systematically planning all steps before the fact. The systems analysis approach relies on a one-way flow from science to engineering. If science is the exploration of the unknown and engineering is the application of scientific knowledge already gained, then concurrency and development and production tooling make sense if the scientific foundations exist. What remains relies on planning the engineering steps to bring scientific knowledge into reality. Werner von Braun, chief of the Army missiles in 1958, said, quote, I believed an established missile program like the Jupiter has much more similarity with an industrial planning job than it does with a scientific project. I would say it's 90% engineering and 10% scientific, end quote. While systems analysis believe that the basic science requires duplication and overlap, engineering development and production tooling should not. However, even if development efforts can be characterized as engineering-based, it does not relieve them of fundamental uncertainties. In fact, the engineering discovery process often creates solutions that precede a fundamental scientific understanding. The Army, for example, conducted Jupiter's industrial planning very different from that recommended by a systems analysis, to its own benefit as well as the benefit of the Air Force. Harvard researchers Martin Peck and Frederick Scherer found that the Air Force Atlas ICBM program, led by General Bernie Schriever, had critical technology problems solved by the Army Jupiter program. They showed how the engineering methods used by the Army included trial-and-error processes that systematically search for information without an understanding of all the physical aspects before the fact. Quote, There remained, as General Schriever noted, one critical problem, re-entry of the warhead into the atmosphere, about which little physical knowledge existed. When ballistic missile warheads re-enter the atmosphere at speeds up to 20,000 miles per hour, shock waves with temperatures up to 15,000 degrees Fahrenheit or more are generated. But just how these shock waves were formed, and how they behaved in contact with various physical shapes, and how the tremendous temperatures would react with materials in the shock wave environment, were all unknown. In this respect, Atlas was a scientific project. Even then, however, it turned out that the re-entry problem was resolved by engineering activities before a complete scientific understanding existed. The Jupiter IRBM nose cone problem was solved largely in an empirical manner. It was known from theoretical calculations that the nose cone had to resist certain general heats and shockwaves. Guided by test data on rocket throat temperatures, one material after another and one shape after another were tried in the exhaust blast of a rocket engine until the most successful combination was found. This nose cone illustration reflects a broader set of technical problems typifying advanced weapons development. 
fundamental scientific knowledge about the environment in which new aircraft, guided missiles, and space vehicles must operate has frequently been lacking during many developments in the 1950-1960 to era. For example, science has yet to provide sufficient understanding for how objects behave in various supersonic and hypersonic environments to predict fully the problems which will be encountered in flight. All too often, these problems do not become apparent until a prototype vehicle is test-flown unsuccessfully. Then, isolating the problem requires lengthy trial-and-error testing in which scientific theory may be of little assistance. End quote. Had not the Army pursued its own parallel path on ballistic missiles that rejected the systems analysis approach, the Air Force Atlas ICBM might not have proved successful. If a system requires all components to function and integrate, then Atlas would never have reached operational status until every component, including the nose cone, functioned. Had the Air Force chosen to break off nose cone engineering until they could generate a scientific knowledge of reentry, it isn't clear that the objective could ever have been accomplished. In technological progress, there exists a reflexive relationship between scientific and engineering discovery not a one-way flow of information from the scientist to the engineer. Algen identified an optimistic bias emerging in industry. It resulted from a lock-in problem created by the systems approach, which selected the development, procurement, and operational support all at the same time. The selection was thus made entirely on estimates from contractors who had little incentive to provide realistic figures. Traditionally, contractors would finance development overruns or even the entire project themselves. Winning systems led to large, profitable procurement contracts where they recouped development losses. J.L. Atwood, president of North American Aviation, summarized the Air Force's industrial environment. Quote, There is a disproportionate premium attached to winning a design competition. It is the ticket of admission to the production show. But after all, a design is just a list of promises based on calculations, which in turn are predicted on assumptions that can vary with the optimism of the producer. Rarely if ever have there been any real penalties when the glowing forecasts of design proposals were adjusted downward to the physical facts of the airplane, and then it is too late to change. End quote. Alchin's recommendations to avoid the lock-in problem was to start more R&D projects, make them pay, and break the relationship between developer and producer. Quote, the way to weaken the importance of winning design competitions is simply to bring enough competitive designs through the development stage. End quote. Alchin essentially advocated replacing before-the-fact controls based on paper designs with after-the-fact controls based on hardware. Instead of letting the contractors take losses as they had before systems analysis, Alchin advocating getting contractors, quote, into the development work for where they can get profits in development rather than as a vehicle for obtaining production profits, end quote. By making development pay, procurement contracts could then be awarded for efficiency in procurement and need not be tied to the same contractor that developed it. Technical skills in development and production differed in form and function and need not always be under the same roof. The increased development costs in support of diversity would be returned by, one, the generating of savings in procurement and operation, the far larger slice of the pie, two, 
increasing the quality of systems available to be procured, and three, ensuring against changing states of the world with functional alternatives ready for production. Alchin wrote, quote, The insurance principle of diversified investment in development is superior to the principle of developing and procuring one flexible weapon. This assertion is refutable, but so strong is our conviction in this that we strongly recommend this theorem as a basic part of systems analysis. In all frankness, we are obstinately insistent that this is true for research and development decisions. We are of an open mind on the issue of whether or not this is true for procurement and other categories of decisions." End quote. Interestingly, Alchin leaves open the idea for application of diversity to procurement, presumably where operational costs are particularly high or environments uncertain. This would push the primary benefits of optionality to operations and potentially increase the relative procurement costs. Alton revisited the four rationales for systems analysis and flatly called their implications false. He wrote, quote, one, inadequate compensation for development work is the reason developers feel inadequately compensated. It's not because of some other technological or natural fact of life. Therefore, the cure is not in using systems analysis, however desirable that may be for other reasons. The cure is to break the link between development and procurement and make the development pay. 2. Resources are not wasted when perfectly sound aircraft are developed and then not procured. In fact, such an outcome is necessary as a result of an adequate development program. Failure of such an outcome is absolute proof of an inadequate development. 3. Superiority of particular planes cannot be ascertained by systems analyses. The ignorance giving rise to this inability is not the kind of systems analysis we'll be able to remove. 4. The time from research and development to production is not too long. This view confuses the time to perform a task with the completion date. We want early completion dates, and this can be achieved despite lengthening the interval between development and procurement if we can arrive at given states of technical knowledge even earlier. We may summarize our conclusions. First, systems analyses are machines for generating implications of postulated initial information. They do not generate outcomes or decisions. Two, under uncertainty, the criterion of decisions is not simple maximization. The essence of decision process is to affect the scope of random factors so as to give a good probability distribution of outcomes. The insurance principle is to decisions what maximizations are to analytical implications. 3. Insurance requires diversity of investment, not variety of possible environments or flexibility of particular weapons. 4. Optimal diversity in concrete situations cannot be ascertained, but institutional arrangements wherein biases are created against diversity and towards identification of analysis with decision are prima facie evidence of a system that yields suboptimal diversity. And five, stratification of military problem into categories according to those in which diversity is economical and not optimal will facilitate an appreciation of purpose and usefulness of systems analysis. End quote. As the 1950s progressed, Alton stopped spending as much time at RAND. However, he continued to support other RAND economists who were working on problems of military R&D. 
1958 paper by Rand economists Burton Klein, William Meckling, and Herman Methine continued where Alchin left off. The authors wrote how R&D is, quote, a search, a discovery process. R&D is not intended to buy airplanes or missiles. It buys knowledge, end quote. The very act of performing a systems analysis before the fact implies already having solved all potential problems. The remainder is simply to administer the solution without discretion. Put another way, R&D does not involve defining projects around future technologies because to be able to predict an answer is tantamount to a solution. The authors gave five policy recommendations to improve R&D. First, the planning process needs to be simplified by defining work scope in the broadest of terms. Second, there should be more authority in project offices to take advantage of knowledge discovery if and when it happens. Third, alternative approaches to difficult problems should be fully developed and brought to test. Fourth, financial commitments to a single design should be kept modest in the early stages of development. And five, Quick tests of all new equipment should be insisted upon as early as possible. The systems analysis approach, however, flies in the face of all five recommendations. The analogous points for systems analysis may go as follows. First, the planning process needs to be well-defined to select the single best design. Second, project offices should require central direction to ensure optimality across the department. Third, only pursue the single best design for a particular mission and fulfill multiple missions where possible. Fourth, financial commitments should be set aside upfront and for the total expected cost of development and procurement. And fifth, testing comes at the end and is only expected to result in minor modifications. The diversification in systems analysis approaches, both with their own set of proponents in RAND, implied starkly different organizations and management techniques. Rand's schizophrenic attitude were reflected in DoD more broadly. For example, the 1950s Voorhees report found that small and diversified Army R&D programs provided greatly increased strength with unexpected economy. A year later, a different report scolded the Army staff for passively accepting programs from the technical services rather than aggressively formulating, coordinating, and evaluating the Army-wide program. The systems approach eventually won out because of the allure of scientific management. Despite problematic efforts like the F-102 aircraft, the systems analysis approach claimed the ATLAS program as proof of its efficacy. Using the ATLAS model of systems analysis, the Air Force instituted the 375 series regulations in 1961, institutionalizing the systems project office as well as its reporting and approval processes controlled by headquarters staff. As described to Congress, the linear steps to a procurement program were first, the staff officers decide what is needed, second, a systems project office is created to go obtain it, and third, the combatant commands use it. In deciding what is needed, the staff performed extensive before-the-fact planning, such as identify responsibilities, tasks, and time phasing of major actions of all participants. To start any kind of work on a project, the budget had to be there. For the budget to be available, there had to exist a detailed program definition that spelled out exactly how the full system would be obtained, from research to development to procurement. In this way, policymaking of headquarters staff truly determined the administration of the program. Planning translated into doing, with little discretion by the ones actually doing the work. 
Yet even the 375 series recognize uncertainty in that administration might require redirection at a later date. Whenever discretion was required, it should run up the chain to headquarters, which would assure that all participants are provided with adequate, consistent, and timely decisions, guidance, and resource allocations. While the form of centralization did not assure extensive barriers to diversity and optionality, it solidified an institutional bias that Alchin worried about. By 1961, the systems analysis debate had a clear victor, the tenets of which were written down in a book proclaimed the Bible of the Pentagon. Rand's President Colbum verified that Rand's general philosophy concerning costing and cost-effectiveness studies is reflected in Project Rand Report, subsequently published as a book entitled The Economics of Defense in the Nuclear Age by Charles Hitch and Roland McKean. The book propelled Charles Hitch from the head of Rand's economics division to the Assistant Secretary of Defense Comptroller. In the book, Armin Alchin was relegated to a single footnote. His ideas were summarily dismissed by Hitch as natural selection. The systems analysis approach emerged from the 1950s largely unreformed, and when packaged with a revival of the program budget concept, would form a lasting institutional framework for the management of defense. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.